Hunting is not easy. It never has been. It takes dedication, motivation, a lot of patience, and quality gear. If you manage a food plot, put up stands, or need just one more game camera, we can help at MidwayUSA.com. We opened our doors in 1977 and continue to put customers first by offering super fast, same day shipping. For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. When it comes to hunting boots, how many pairs does one man need? Well, how many seasons are there? Turkey season? Deer season? Duck season? Dove season? Honey, how many pairs of boots does one man need? At least one more pair. For just about everything for hunting, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Larry Potterfield with Midway USA. Thanks for your business. Hey, I just got back from lunch. Did you finish that report yet? Uh, well, not exactly. Um, still working on it. I'm not finished just yet. Uh, I got a little sidetracked, but I will get them to you first thing this afternoon. <laughs> it is first thing this afternoon. Well, yeah, I, I understand that, but I mean, I, I am working on it. But what do you mean that the report isn't finished yet? I'm, I'm still in the process of working on it. I've just been a little distracted. T- distracted? Our meeting starts in an hour. You, no, no. What were you doing? Were you listening to another hunting podcast again? I swear, I give the staff in this office the freedom to do whatever they want to do as long as they meet a deadline. That is the first bullet underneath your job description. Pays attention to detail and deadline. And deadline. Are you even listening to me right now? Hey folks, it's that time of year to be shooting your bow in preparation for the fast approaching opening day of archery season here in Pennsylvania. If you haven't been down to Williams Archery Pro Shop and Indoor Range yet, get off the couch and head down to Edinburgh, PA. They've been in business for 29 years and they specialize in bow tuning and hands-on shooting lessons. It's a family-owned bow dealership who offers Hoyt, PSE, Bear, Parker, and more. Don't forget your archery accessories and arrows when you stop in to see Ron and Linda Williams. Give the shop a call at 724-667-9660. And make sure you tell them you heard about Williams Archery on the Whitetail Distraction Podcast, and they will get you set up. Welcome to Episode 12 of the Whitetail Distraction Podcast. My name's Austin, and join me today in the Rack Shack, and always, Charles Headland. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great, Austin. What's going on, my man? Oh, man. You know, just sitting here, thinking about deer season. It's coming in in a couple of days. I'm real pumped about it. It is just around the corner, and I cannot be more excited about it. I mean, I'm fired up, man. It, it's it's that time of year. The weather's good. It's looking really nice for Saturday, too. It's going to oh, yeah. be like in the 60s, lows in the 40s. It's a beautiful thing, man. <laughs> we couldn't ask for a better first day for archery hunting. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, what do you have? Uh, what do you have on the docket for Saturday opening day? Well, I'll be heading up Friday to the camp. Uh, myself and my three brothers and my dad will be up there for sure that I know of. Um, and I'm thinking, I don't know, morning hunt. I got, you know, I got my lone wolf sticks and I'm XOP stand. I think I'm just going to go ahead and, uh, oh, Anthony's coming up too. So Anthony's going to sit in my ladder stand in the morning. There you go. Hopefully, hopefully it's still there because honestly, I've stayed out of the area completely. I haven't even checked on that stand because I hadn't planned on hunting it, but Hopefully that stand's still there. He'll hunt that, and I'll probably go somewhere real close to the parking lot 
because I know that I've had success there in the past first day in the morning and yeah. we've seen a lot of deer. So I'm probably going to just go ahead and hang and hunt in the morning, get in real early. Yeah. You know, I know before I talked about maybe going in and first light and kind of creeping through, but you know, I, I've, uh, I've thought about it for a little bit and there's a nice bedding area. I can remember when I was tracking my dad's deer there last year. Um, so I think I'm going to try to get right on that transition edge between their bedding and the wide open, uh, timber. And it's, it's a pretty primo spot. So maybe I'll just climb up there and best of luck. But, uh, what do you got going on? I like it, man. Well, I was planning on going in and hunting a specific bed, getting real nice and aggressive early, but I think I'm going to save that spot and let it get a little bit of pressure first and really push them into that area. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to load up the kayak tomorrow night and head to a river spot that I have and just do a hang and hunt set there. It's on a nice little pinch and see what happens, man. I don't, I don't know. Awesome. I'm going to try and get in pretty early so I can make sure I get up, set up and everything real nice and early and let the woods kind of calm down and go from there. Yeah, we probably don't want to be hanging up in our uh, tree or climbing up into our tree stand like last Saturday right at uh, first light again. So (laughs) (laughs) good thing we got that out of the way. But, you know, I know for one thing we'll have some kinks out of the way, and uh, I know we'll have our scent control regiment on point thanks to this episode that we have for you guys today. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm really excited about our guest today, John Eberhardt. He is the man, the scent control guru. An absolute legend in the whitetail world. I mean, the guy has 50 deer in the Pope and Young record books, 31 coming out of one of the, the most pressured bow hunting state of Michigan. Oh, yeah. 31 deer in the record books in Michigan. I mean, that's just absolutely impressive. He's an animal, and he does it all from a saddle. Yeah, out of a saddle. He's a, he's 66 now, I believe, and he's just totally fit and a wonderful guy. I had a blast recording this episode with him i did too so hope you guys enjoy okay on the podcast today we have john eberhart how you doing today john i'm doing very well fantastic fantastic so for maybe the people that don't know you john if they're living under a rock or probably a lot of our listeners since we're in a small little area that most people don't even know what a podcast is why don't you go ahead and jump in and maybe a little intro of your background maybe your hunting successes and Kind of go into more about who John Eberhardt is, if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. Uh, first off, it was 87 degrees here today, and during the middle of the day, I finished staining my deck. So I was really hot. <laughs> <laughs> I had to fix the deck and re- rework the whole undercarriage of my deck because all the boards had rotted, and I had to redo it all. That took me about three weeks, but I finally finished it today, so I'm really happy. That's fantastic. Okay. There you go. On the hunting side... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm from Michigan. I've been bow hunting uh, a little over 50, 50 years. Uh, Michigan is the most heavily bow hunted state in the country. We have about 320,000 bow hunters. And I have 31 bucks in the Michigan record book from 19 different properties uh, from 10 different counties. And uh, I've also taken 22 trips out of state. And on those 22 trips out of state, I've killed 19 P&Y bucks from 13 different properties in five different states. That's incredible. Cumulatively, I have 50 bucks in the record book, and there's lots of guys that have several bucks in the record book, but I guess what I'm most proud of is I have 50 bucks in the record book from a a cumulative total of 32 different properties, and I've never owned, I've never leased, I've never paid to hunt any place, I've never hunted over 
in a managed area. I've never hunted on a relative's property. Everything I've killed has been on either public land or knock on doors for free permission properties uh, without the use of bait or food plots or mineral licks or anything like that. So um, Yeah, I'm incredibly impressive. Guy. I'm a pressured guy. That's, that's my forte is I love hunting against competition, so it's totally adverse of what you see on TV and in videos. Yeah, so you don't only have to outsmart the whitetail, you have to outsmart other hunters as well. Yes. You you have to uh, you have to go where other hunters typically are not willing to make the effort to go, because that's where the mature bucks are. Well, I know we're getting you on specifically because you are like the master, the goat of hunting pressured <laughs> whitetails. I really wanted to go into a little bit, since we're going to talk about early season tactics, your scent control regiment, and maybe get a little bit into detail of, of that, because I know you're a guru when it comes to scent control regiments. And then specifically, how do you use your scent control regiment to combat the heat in early season? Okay, well, I'm a huge activated carbon fan, so uh, so I guess that makes me a scent lock fan because Suntlock owns the U.S. patent on using activated carbon. If it had been some other company that was using activated carbon, I would not be a Suntlock fan. I would be whatever that company was. But Suntlock does have the patent for using activated carbon. I've done a ton of research on activated carbon. NASA uses it in their spacesuits. It's in paint respirators. Every single military on the face of the earth uses activated carbon in their chemical warfare suits. Uh, you, they use it in water softeners. Every car has activated carbon in it someplace for filtration. Activated carbon is used in literally thousands and thousands of applications for adsorption purposes. So it's extremely porous, and it's the best adsorbent substance known to man, and that is why Sontlock actually researched it and patented its use for use in hunting garments. And once you learn, I bought my first Suntlock suit, and when I say suit, I'm not talking about what you see on TV, where a guy wears a jacket and a pants and a pair of rubber boots, and he wears a logo ball cap with a beard and his face exposed and face paint on to look cool. That doesn't cut it. You know, when I say a suit, I'm talking about a jacket, pants, Suntlock gloves, and a head cover with a drop-down face mask. So basically, the only thing exposed on your face is your eyes when you have to drop down face mask down. So basically, your, the activated carbon within the suit, because there's actually an activated carbon liner in it, is a catch-all. So any, any odor molecules coming or excreting off your body, whether it be gas or liquid or whatever, is absorbed in those molecules. And then every so often, depending on how much you sweat and perspire, uh, you regenerate the suits. You can't reactivate the suits because to reactivate carbon, you have to heat it up to 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit under pressure. So obviously, you can't reactivate activated carbon in a suit back to its pristine state. So what you can do is you can deabsorb it and get rid of enough molecules to make it 100% adequate enough to absorb enough molecules for three or more hunting ventures. And basically what what that does is when you take a Suntlock suit with the activated carbon liner, and let's say it's somewhat saturated with the human odor molecules or whatever molecules that may be in it, you know, when you buy a suit in a store, it has to be deabsorbed before you use it hunting because it's absorbing molecules when it's sitting in the store. You don't store that. You don't hang it outside because it's absorbed. Activated carbon is absorbing 100% of the time. It's exposed to the environment, so it it has to be stored in an airtight container. But 
to deabsorb it, you throw it in a dryer. Most dryers get up to about 155 degrees if you put it on the highest heat setting it has. And what it does is it, the heat energizes not only the molecules that are bonded to the carbon, it also energizes the, the actual carbon particles. So when you energize something with heat, it expands. That's why there's expansion joints in the highways, there's expansion joints in like the Mackinac Bridge. Any expansion bridge that's made out of metal has expansion joints because when it gets 80, 90 degrees and the sun's out, if there was not expansion joints, the bridge would buckle, the concrete highways would buckle. A lot, a lot of steel structure buildings also have expansion joints in them. So basically, carbon energizes, it actually expands, the molecules also expand when they get energized by the heat, and a certain percentage of the molecules break free from the bond of the activated carbon and actually exit out the dryer. And then as soon as the dryer stops, you have to take the clothing out of the dryer, put it in an airtight container so that the activated carbon is not absorbing anything, and then you leave it in an airtight container until you physically go out into the field. Then you change from your street clothes into your scent lot clothing, go hunting. When you get back to your vehicle or get back to your house if you're hunting behind your house, then you take off the scent lot clothing, put it back in an airtight container, put your street clothes back on and go on about your business. So activated carbon clothing works great. There isn't one TV guy I've ever seen on TV that has a clue how to use it. None of them do. They hunt areas where, you know, mature whitetails are a lot more tolerant of human odor because there's no hunting pressure and they're allowed to grow to maturity without any negative consequences. So activated carbon works great, but you have to do it all. It's just like having a car with four tires, okay? If you wear the jacket and the pants and let's say you wear a glove and you do wear a, a stunt-like hat but you don't have the drop-down face mask, 40% of your odor comes out of your head, mostly out of your hair follicles. So if you just got the cap and you got hair hanging down behind your hat and you got a beard and you got an exposed face, you know, that's like having a flat tire on a car. You know, it's still going to drive, but it's not going to drive that well. So if you got an exposed face, yes, it's going to be better than having no scent lock on whatsoever, but it's not going to work to its full extent of what it should. So. If you have an exposed face with hair hanging down below a hat or a beard, you better pay attention to the wind. So you're saying having a baby face my entire life has helped me out to this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I cut my hair shorter. I cut my armpit hair. I cut my pubic hairs during hunting season. Uh, that's getting a little personal. <laughs> yeah, I cut my hair shorter because hair is a breeding ground for bacteria. And it just cracks me up. I see these guys on TV with face paint on their face and beards that are just stinkier than hell. And they're killing big bucks, but people yeah. got to realize these guys are hunting in areas where there's literally no other hunting competition, and a buck doesn't get shot at until he's four years old or older, so or three or four years old or older. So they're walking by hunters as they're growing to maturity with no negative consequences. So obviously right. they have a real high tolerance of human odor, and then by the time they get to the kill criteria, they're still moving during daylight. You know, they're not like a mature buck in a pressured area where there's 20 bow hunters in a section and 40 gun hunters in a section. It's, mm -hmm. it's a totally different type of an animal. You, they're not even anything similar to each other. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Now, I have one question based off of that. Do you think layering activated carbon clothing, like, um, as opposed to a single layer, does that help? Uh, I, it, it could. Uh, I'll be honest. I've never needed to. Uh, in other words, I, I don't believe you have to. Let me put it that way. Would it help? Of course it would. It's gonna, if you wear, if you wear a base layers, cause the scent lock base undergarments do have activated carbon in them as well. Obviously, if you wear a base garment and then your scent lock exterior suit, 
your base garment because it's the closest thing to your body where your odor molecules are coming off from or is going to do the majority of the work. It's going to extend the longevity of the lifespan of the exterior suit. But do I think it's absolutely needed? No. I rarely ever use a scent lock undergarment. I, I'm a big merino wool fan. I am too. So I, I wear merino wools 90% of the time under, underneath. And then, of course, depending, I'm in Michigan, so it gets cold. You know, I have a lot of different layering type garments. And I also wash all of my undergarments in, you know, scent-free detergent and mm-hmm. keep those in airtight containers as well. So yeah, know, everything I do is, is airtight containers. But my scent lock I'll wear, you know, three or four times before I deabsorb it. Whereas when I wear an undergarment that has no technology in it at all, let's say I got something made by Sitka with zero technology, and I wear it as an undergarment because it's got some insulation in it, you know, I won't wear that usually more than twice as an undergarment under my scent lock before I wash it in non-scent detergent and then dry it and put it back in that, you know, container with my other under under layers. Gotcha. Now, during the early season, like we mentioned, when it gets really warm, um, what do you do for that when trying to combat scent and then, you know, sweating and different things along that line? What, what do you do maybe in the field that helps you out or before you go into the field? Well, the first thing I do for, for early season hunting, Scentlock makes several different, you know, weights of suit. So if, if I were a consumer and I were looking at having just one Scentlock suit, it would without question be a full season. Full season has been around forever. They changed the the model, but at full season, it's kind of a mid-weight suit. I think mm-hmm. the new one is called the Tactics, full season Tactics. But the early season suit or the suit that they make for the southern hunters, you know, down in Georgia, Carolinas and stuff, hence the name Savannah. And that's a lighter weight suit. It has the exact same carbon liner in it, but it has a lighter exterior fabric, and it's more permeable. In other words, it allows airflow through it to make it more comfortable and evaporate whatever perspiration you're going to have underneath. But still, even with that, you know, when it's 80, 85 degrees, you know, I was talking to a guy from North Carolina today, it's difficult because perspiration is an issue, and usually it's perspiration on your entry route. That's usually where you perspire. Mm-hmm. And then once you get on stand, uh, what I typically do is I may not wear my scent lock jacket. I'll wear my scent lock pants, but if I'm going to a spot on an evening hunt, I'll have my jacket in my backpack, but I won't put it on until I get relatively close to my stand. Then I'll stop when I'm within 100 yards, 150 yards of my stand. I'll stop, get the jacket out of my backpack, which is also a scent lock pack, I might add. And then I'll put my jacket on, and I'll just try to walk walk slower. But if I get to my stand, I get up in my saddle. If I'm perspiring, it's not uncommon for me at all to actually take off my jacket. I'll probably have just a real thin T-shirt as my bottom layer. I'll take off my jacket, possibly even take off my T-shirts, and I always carry scent-free wipes in in my Ziploc bag in my pack. And I'll wipe my body down with scent-free wipes best that I can in my face and my back of my neck. And then I'll try and let my body cool off as much as I can. And I try to do this relatively fast, but I'm usually in my tree plenty early. On morning hunts, I'm usually in my tree an hour and a half before daylight. So I I allow my body to cool off. Then I put usually a clean T-shirt. I pack in a clean T-shirt, and then I put my scent lock jacket back on over top of it. And then the dirty T-shirt will go in a Ziploc bag in, in my pack so that there's no odor involved in that. 
and the scent-free wipes that I use to wipe my face down and my body down will also go in a Ziploc bag. So there's no odor involved with that. And that, that's something else I have to touch on. If you're going out there and you do happen to own a scent-lock suit and you're properly caring for it and you do have the head cover, drop-down face mask and gloves, you also, if you want to be 100%, not have to worry about wind direction whatsoever because I pay zero attention to the wind, you have to take care of your backpack. If you don't have a scent lock backpack, you have to wash it frequently in non-scent detergent, and as soon as it comes out of the dryer, store it in an airtight container. You can load it and then put it in your container. But there's so many hunters, when I've done seminar, seminars across the Midwest, I'll ask people, okay, how many people use scent lock? Okay, how many people have been winded? Hands will go up. Okay, how many of you, you people own a backpack? Almost everybody hunts with a backpack or a fanny pack, and I ask them, well, how often do you wash it? Never. I don't think I've ever had a guy say, yeah, I wash my backpack and I wash my or my fanny pack. So they get into their packs every day. If you hunt mornings and evenings, you probably get into your pack twice a day with your bare hands to reload it for the next hunt. I mean, that's just what hunters do. So you got this huge human scent wick that you may not, you may have a backpack you haven't washed for three years. And then if you're in a tree and you've got a scent lock suit on, drop down face mask, rubber boots, everything else perfect, and you get winded, you're going to blame your suit on it, when in reality, they winded your backpack. It stinks like crazy. So it, it's a kind of an all-or-nothing deal. It, you know, there's different degrees, but you've got to do it all if you want to totally be oblivious of paying attention to wind direction. I don't care where the wind's swirling or thermals or any of that stuff. I pay zero attention to that anymore. Yeah, I wasn't going to let you get away without touching base on that because I've heard you talk about it before, and that's, uh, like you said, one overlooked part of your scent lock regimen is your backpack and what's in the backpack so um but i do want to also ask you have you ever used anything with like um like oxygen machines or the like the scent blocker bags like ozone ozone yeah sorry ozone machines or anything like that does that have an effect on scent lock like the carbon activated carbon i'm glad you asked (laughs) (laughs) me too I have used ozone machines, and I'm not a believer in them. And it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting because Scentlock now sells OZ machines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, ozone machines leave an odor. When Ozone 6 machines first came out, they sent me three of them to test and see what I thought about them. And, of course, first thing you do is you take a stinky old pair of tennis shoes and you put them in a tub and you run the hose to it and you turn on the machine, and it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It got rid of all the odor in those sneakers. They didn't, there was no human odor in them whatsoever. But there was an ozone odor, mm-hmm. and it was very strong. And it's not, ozone is not what's out in the woods. So anything that's not out in the woods, any odor, I don't care what it is, it's a foreign odor to a mature buck. Sure, a year and a half and two and a half year old bucks may come in, does and fawns may come in downwind of it. But mature bucks in pressured areas, they don't put up with much. They've been there, done that. And when anything, any odor is not supposed to be there and they're coming into a destination area on the merits that I chose it for, you know, they're coming into a natural destination area, let's say at an apple tree or a white oak tree or at a primary scrape area or at a terrain feature dump where a lot of different terrain features come together in a, in a point or in a pinch point. And they're coming to that on on the merits that I chose that location for, and all of a sudden they smell an ozone odor, which I can smell as a human being. So you can only imagine how much they can smell it. Yeah, it's not a human odor, but it's still foreign. 
and that affects a mature buck coming in to a destination location if he smells a foreign odor. I've had many hunters tell me that. In fact, I know one TV guy that is sponsored by an ozone company, and he's and I'm talking about the one that goes over your head. Right. I've never used that one. But he said if it's dead calm, those help a little bit. But if there's any wind, ozone molecules are the same weight as human odor molecules. So if there's any wind, that blows that ozone right past you before it comes down over your body. And ozone machines, all if anybody does any research on ozone, humidity has a huge impact on how well ozone even works. And, you know, they don't even take humidity into account when they advertise that stuff. Everybody that I don't believe any hunting company's website says, not even Scentlocks. I, I research everything online. I Google the actual technology and see where it's used in other, other types of industries and stuff. And activated carbon is used in tons and tons of industries. Ozone is used for a lot of things as well, but ozone has an odor. Activated carbon does not. And I will not use anything that has foreign odor. I even put my, if I buy a new pair of boots, they go in a tub with activated carbon in it for at least a year before I'll even wear them out in the field because they have a rubber or a neoprene odor if they're muck boots. Now, does the ozone dissipate? Like the well, ozone any, odor? Well, I mean, it eventually will dissipate, and then the bacteria is killed, correct? Yes, it will eventually dissipate. Okay. I was, yeah. just, I was curious. And Scentlock's not actually advertising their ozone for regenerating or deabsorbing their clothing. They're primarily advertising what they're selling for, like, taking the odors out of your vehicle. Okay. Uh, stuff like that, plug it into your cigarette lighter, and it works good for that. But then you can, you know, you can open your windows and, and kind of let it air out, because you'll definitely smell the ozone. Yeah. No, that makes but sense. ozone is a foreign odor. Ozone mm-hmm. is an odor that's there after a storm. You know, there's ozone odors in the air after a storm, but, you know, that's pretty rare that you're hunting in a storm. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, I have another question. This is kind of like, it's been debated for however long how do you feel about peeing in the woods some guys say yes some guys say no i say no you say no i've smelled a lot i've let's put it this way i've I've pissed on the ground and i've smelled my own piss and i've smelled a lot of scrapes after they were urinated in by does and bucks where i physically saw them urinate and then i go down on my exit and i might sniff the ground human urine does not smell like deer urine it's Totally, totally different. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, personally, I don't, I don't think you should do it. And I mean, why take it's the chance? It's all a matter of degree. You know, what do you want to kill? Right. You know, I get, I get really tired of people telling me, "Well, I have deer come by me all, come in where I'm pee out of the tree all the time," mm-hmm. or "I use this and I have deer come into it all the time." This particular scent. Well, is it a deer you want to kill? Because if it's a year and a half or a two and a half year old buck or just does and fawns, so what if they come in? That's totally irrelevant that's not what you're trying to kill right you're trying to kill a mature buck and that deer is a lot smarter than the ones that are coming in to whether it be urine or a specific scent or whatever you know you you just can't generalize on having deer come in and say something works because it's what kind of deer coming in and what do you physically want to kill yeah, I know you're not real big on any kind of foreign scents, um, and I, I personally am not big on them. But even like the earth scent wafers and anything earth scent, what do you think about that? I'm a sales rep for a scent company, and mm-hmm. I don't use scents, so that that's basically all I'm gonna say. Yeah. I, <laughs> that makes sense. I don't use anything that's foreign to the woods. Urines that are bottled have bacteria in it. They're usually bottled in June or July, and you know kept bottled until 
They're used in October or November, so they have bacteria. They smell different. They don't smell different to us, but they smell different to deer. And I used to use all that stuff. I used to use doenestrus. I used to use bucking rut urines and all that stuff. And I, I can't, of the 50 bucks I've got in the record book, I can't attribute any of them to coming in to a scent drag or using an earth scent as a cover-up or raccoon mm-hmm. as a cover scent or fox as a cover scent. I, I can't attribute anything I did, and I haven't used scents probably in at least 25 years, but I couldn't attribute it you know, even when I was using it anything in the past where I killed a specific mature buck strictly due to it coming into scents. Yeah, that you makes know, a whole lot of sense. You're going to edit stuff on TV all the time because of editing. Right. You can edit anything to make a TV show look like what they're trying to sell. Oh, you mean like when they draw back when the deer's looking right at them? Yes. <laughs> when, the, when the deer come in, they rattle, and the deer comes in and sticks their head down in the weeds. And in yeah. reality, they came in because they're eating corn, and it was an hour after they rattled. But still, <laughs> on TV, it makes it look like they rattled it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I'm, you know, I'm getting a little hard on those guys. That, well, you know, there's yeah. so many damn good hunters in this country, and why people look up to TV guys, I'll, I'll never, ever understand that. You know, You know, when you look at... You look like a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan or a Phil Mickelson or a Tiger Woods. You know, those guys, to get to where they were at, to the pinnacle of their sport, they did it by competing through high, middle school, high school, college, and then in the professionals. And basically, they competed with everybody, all their competitors, on the same exact playing fields, the same golf courses as Michael Phelps in the same swimming pools. So they competed with everybody on the same playing fields to get to the pinnacle of where they're at. So they have totally 100% earned that. Yeah. On TV and hunting, those guys compete against nobody. Mm-hmm. They have never competed against anybody to get to the place they're at as hunting personalities. They're hunting micromanaged properties. There's no competition whatsoever. There's, you know, they don't shoot deer till they're four years old or three or four years old. So, you know, they're not competing against anybody to get to where they're at. So, what they're doing as far as their hunting methods are pretty much irrelevant for the average guy that's hunting public land because it's a totally different animal. It's a totally different type of, a, of deer that they're hunting. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that anymore. Yeah, I can uh, maybe even like understand the frustration when people watch that. People like you that have done the successful things that are not hunting at all. It's not even almost the same sport as what these people on TV are doing. But you're getting it done in a, a way better way in a lot harder, more difficult way. And I can see the frustration when you watch something like that. And you see the people doing everything wrong, but yet they're still getting it done on giant bucks. And, you know, it, it's almost, it's not gratifying in a way to watch that. It's pure entertainment, you know. But I, I would get more gratitude from, you know, just being more thankful to or more proud of killing a deer at 110 caliber on public land like we do or, you know, property like you hunt. Because we earned it more, in my opinion. Oh, in my opinion, you you killing a 110-inch deer in Pennsylvania, that's equivalent to killing a 180-inch buck out in Iowa and Kansas. I'm serious. It's it's absolutely it's just night and day. It's night and day difference. And I'm not I'm not jealous of those guys, and no. they don't really piss me off, if you will. It's it's just that I try to give information to make everybody the best they can be. If they're hunting public land, you know, get your scent control better. Mm-hmm. You know, hunt out of a saddle or, or look for this type of thing when you're scouting. 
you know, I, I like everybody to be as good as they can be and people to be more successful. And it just bothers me that people watch that TV stuff. There's a lot of people that are enamored by those shows and they think if they do the same thing that those TV guys do, that they're going to kill those kind of bucks. And most places where most people hunt, those kind of bucks don't even exist, period. Oh, yeah. Oh, can't kill something if it doesn't exist. And it's just so misleading and that's kind of what bothers me is because so many people are enamored by it and go out and use their practice those tv guys practices and methods thinking it's going to work for them when in reality it won't but they don't know any better than to follow those guys because they don't know the reality of what hunting public land and pressured areas is really i guess yeah yeah no i couldn't agree any more with that now being that we're talking about early season, um, moving away from scent control just a little bit, um, yep. what are you keying in on in the early season? Are you going bed to food? Are you looking for early season scrapes, or what? Do you, what are you really looking for when you're uh, when you're hunting your next stand? Okay, everything I do is postseason. I I prep and look for new locations during postseason. Which you guys, if you've read any of my three books, you know that I have bow hunting whitetails the Eberhart way sitting on my desk right now. Okay, so I'm a big postseason guy where you're looking at, you know, the previous season scrapes and runways and, and before green up, you can see everything and you can scout and spook deer. It doesn't make any difference. You can scrutinize every inch of the property. So I prep all my new locations and scout any places that I'm going to hunt that fall during postseason. And then during postseason, I also go to all of my old school locations that I've been hunting for years and re prep those, if you will, you know, cut all the overgrown stuff that grew last summer and, you know, just kind of reprep them for fall. And then what I typically do is I may, I may after postseason, which is typically end of, end of April is when it starts to green up and I'm done by then, uh, I'll probably have on average about 40 trees prepped. Oh my. And I would say probably half of those trees, this is generalizing, of course, Maybe half of those trees are at destination feeding locations. So they're going to be at like apple trees, white oak trees, red oak trees, or they might also be at pinch points between a bedding area and a preferred feeding area like a standing cornfield, or they might be at a terrain feature dump where there's some prime, you know, it was an old primary scrape area. So then what I do to get ready for which of these locations am I going to hunt during the early season and put into my rotation. What I do is I'm waiting right now. In fact, next week is when I'm going to do it. I After September 20th, because Michigan season opens on October 1st, I always wait until after September 20th to do what I call a speed tour. So I put on my scent lock. I get as scent-free as I possibly can, and I will drive around, you know, some of my places where I hunt, public lands downstate, two and a half hours away. But I'll drive to every place, and I'll do a real fast speed walk, and I'll go to those 20 locations that could potentially be good early season locations. Again, at apple trees, acorn trees, you know, scrape areas. You're just checking whether they're, they're whether they're dropping or whether the uh, apple I'm trees not have only apples. Check, I wait until after September 20th for two reasons. First off, I want to see if they're, they produce master fruit. Yep. Obviously. And if it's a scrape area or the scrape's active. But also what I want to do is any big buck that I want to kill, you know, three and a half year old and older buck, he's going to be rubbed out typically by about the 5th of September at the absolute latest. Because big bucks rub earlier. 
So he's had almost two, maybe two and a half weeks by the time I get there where if it's at an apple tree that's dropping apples, odds are there's probably going to be a scrape there and there's probably going to be a couple rubs in the area. So basically what I'm looking for, I'm looking to verify that there's actually food dropping and I'm verifying what buck sign there is there because I'm going to be hunting there in a week or so. So that's kind of what I do. And according to the buck sign posting that I see or the scrapes being open that I see, that's how I figure out what early season locations go into my rotation. And, you know, summer morning spots, usually if it's at an apple tree or at a white oak tree, those are strictly evening spots because I don't want to spook deer at them with my morning entries. So those are strictly evening spots. A scrape area might be a morning spot, you know, a scrape area between a a feeding crop field and back in a bedding area or around the perimeter of a bedding area or uh, a transition dump, you know, where terrain features like a ridge may dump down into a swamp or or there's the edge of a weed field or something. So that's kind of how I look at my early season. But typically they're, they're at feeding destination locations because early season mature bucks are still in that feeding pattern but their their testosterone as soon as they shed their velvet their testosterone is starting to rise so not only are these destination feeding locations where they may stop eat something it's also where the does are going to be feeding and all buck activity when testosterone levels start to rise revolves around doe activity it's a twofold deal it's a place for them to feed and it's also a place where those are going to feed, which is going to attract the bucks. Okay, so you're not really... that I do hunt also have to have everything I hunt any time of the year, in Michigan anyway, when I go out west it's totally different, mm-hmm. have to have security cover, perimeter security cover around the actual kill zone, and it also has to have transition security cover to a known bedding area. Because a mature buck in a pressured area typically is not going to expose himself in an open open woodlot or an open field or along the edge of an open short crop field during daylight hours. So they need some sort of perimeter security cover at the location, and they need transition security cover to an own bedding area. Okay. So you hunt a lot of apples, and you're, you're looking for white oaks as opposed to red oaks. Um, let's say... For instance, this year, the white oaks are going crazy, and the mass crop is absolutely incredible, and there's there's just food everywhere. How do you go about tackling that? I don't pay any attention to crops. Okay. If there's white oaks in an area, and they have the adequate perimeter security cover and transition security cover to a known bedding area, that's definitely where I'm going to be. So you might Whether be looking for a white oak. I, I hunt red oaks, too. Yeah. If I have the option of whites over reds, I will obviously do whites because they have less tannins and deer prefer those. Right. But if if I'm in an area and there's no white oaks and there's reds, the deer will definitely tear up the red oaks just as, just as well. Okay. But if they have the option, they'll eat whites, prefer those over reds. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're more looking for, let, let's just say, like a white oak in a bedding area almost, like in security cover. That's like your primo spot. I wouldn't say in a bedding area. Because to me, when you hunt within the interior of the bedding area, it almost has to be an all-day hunt, so you don't spook deer with your entry or exit. Right. you got to be in there way before daylight and not leave till after dark. So usually I save my bedding area hunts until the rut phases, because I love hunting bedding areas, but I, they're all-day sits for me. So when I'm talking about security cover, it could be on the edge of a bedding area. It could be in a pinch point 
of timber between, let's say, a hay field or a bean field and a bedding area, but there's good, you know, there, there's adequate uh, security cover in that transition zone for them to move through, you know, during daylight hours. Because that's one thing I found out about mature bucks in, in like, a Michigan and I'm sure in PA or West Virginia where there's tons of hunting pressure. They just don't open. They just don't move through open woodlots. Yeah. You know, like on TV. You see guys set up in a tree and there's no understudy in the timber and the deer of these big bucks walk out into this open timber and and feed on acorns or whatever. That doesn't happen in pressured areas. That just doesn't happen. If it does, it's extremely rare. Uh, they like to have some semblance of security cover where within one or two bounds, they're gone and they don't have to worry about getting killed. So, and that same deal on the, you know, if, if I found an active primary scrape area on the edge of, let's say, a bean field or a hay field, when I do my speed tour, I would still not hunt that because a mature buck in the areas that I hunt are not going to make themselves exposed on the edge of that open field at, the, at those scrapes during daylight hours. They may be their scrapes. They may be working those scrapes, but it's during the security of darkness. And those scrapes may have subordinate bucks come in and visit them during the day, but not the bucks I want to kill. Yeah, so the mature bucks almost have like a circle perimeter of safety in which you're saying they're not going to leave that area before, you know, before it's dark. Percentage-wise, yes. Okay. Um, now so Everything I based on percentages. Okay. Now, you also are an advocate of morning hunting early season as well, where you can hear so many guys that say they just don't even go out in the mornings early season. But what are you doing different that helps you not, you know, kick up deer or is it just, you know, the place that you're picking where you're hunting or is there something else that you do that helps you be successful early in the year well i, I don't hunt mornings as much as i do evenings early season because typically at a white oak or a red oak at a food at a feeding location destination location you know you're spooking deer with your entry if you go in there an hour before mm -hmm. daylight and there's deer feeding at the apple tree or, or at an oak tree or whatever you know you're going to spook them with your entry Whereas typically they're not there feeding you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon when you go in, then they come out and start feeding, you know, before dark. So mornings at feeding locate destination feeding locations are not really a wise thing to do. But let's say there's a, a pinch point in some transition cover between a crop field and a bedding area, or along the perimeter of a bedding area where the where the transition security cover dumps into the bedding area. That would be a, a spot that I would definitely go in and hunt in the morning. But my entry would not be, obviously, through the field. The deer are going to be feeding in the field, you know, at night before daylight. So I'd have to come in around the perimeter of the swamp. And then when I exit, then I would go out and exit through the field. Most of my locations have a different entry route than they do an exit route. You know, like, let's say I've got one of my best locations is, an apple tree, early season location is an apple tree. It's about 40 yards off of a crop field. In the years it's, the crop field is in standing corn is when it's typically the best. There's weeds all around it, so it's good every year. But typically when it's in standing corn, bucks tend to come out of the standing corn and come down and feed on the apples in the evening. But the years that it's not in standing corn... If I'm going to hunt it in the evening, my entry route would be, let's say it's beans. I'd walk at least 100 yards out into the bean field. I would never walk along the edge of the wood line. I'd walk out into the bean field, walk through the middle of the bean field, and then when I get directly in line with the tree I'm going to hunt, 
I walk a direct beeline from the middle of the bean field to the tree that I'm going to hunt, and then I just walk over the hill from the edge of the field 40 yards down to the tree and get in the tree. Because I've, I've one thing I've learned over the years is anytime you walk the edge of a crop field, you know, there's going to be, especially early season when the weeds are tall, you know, there's going to be deer that I'll bump. And it may be a doe, maybe a fawn, maybe whatever. But walking the edge, a lot of times deer bed close to those edges of those crop fields and, and you spook them with your, you know, evening entry walking along the edge of the field. So I always use the field for my entry. Now, after dark, when I exit that tree, I'm going to go through the woods. I'm not going to be- go back out and e- exit along the edge of the bean field because there's going to be deer in the beans, and I don't want to spook deer in the beans with my exit. So I'm going to go back through the timber and find a route to get back to the road to get to my vehicle. Yeah, that makes total sense. Entries and exits are something people don't take serious enough. I- I've found over the years hunting with some pretty decent hunters, once a hunt is over, they don't care. I mean, they got these headlamps, and they just talk and make noise, and everything matters. When you're in a pressured area, everything matters, man. I use a little tiny AAA pen light for my entries and exits, and I try to be as quiet and non-invasive as possible. And I've watched guys, especially on public land, when I'm in my tree an hour and a half before daylight during the rut, you know, half hour before daylight or 15 minutes before daylight, I'll start seeing these flashlights coming in, you know, a quarter mile away and just spooking everything and and they make noise and they got these big bright headlamps and man if people think deer can't see that stuff they're, they're crazy over impact you make with an entry and an exit i don't care if your hunt's over or not the least amount of human impact you make the better yeah no matter the situation so how early are you getting into your stand usually before daylight i'm typically during the rut phases i am 100 percent of the time, always in my tree, settled in and quiet an hour and a half before daylight. <laughs> yeah, and then I, you take I a try and get that hour in there, <laughs> but that hour and a half set up and everything, that's, that's you're out there pretty early. That's, I get it, though. Real early. I, I remember one buck that was so damn nocturnal, and I, I obviously couldn't shoot him in the dark, but he was going into his bedding area a couple hours before daylight, and I can remember getting in my tree, God, I think it was 4 a.m., and it didn't get daylight till 7. Wow. <laughs> didn't kill him. I mean, I, I ended up killing, in the mid, killing that buck in the middle of the day a year later. You know, you know, at the middle of the day at a primary scrape area, but uh, there will, the year prior, one time I got in my tree three hours before daylight just so that I didn't spook him with my entry. That's how they don't get killed, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he was the smartest deer I've ever shot in my life. He was hands down the most difficult deer I've ever killed. That's incredible. Wasn't that big. It was 125 inches. He's a five-and-a-half-year-old buck. Wow. <laughs> it's an old one, too. Great antlers, but, man, he was, he was a stud when it came to his brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Well, one question I have. So this is kind of like a little bit of a scenario for you. What does your perfect early season day look like? My perfect? Like opening day? Let, yeah, let's just let's just say opening day. Like what if you could have it your way, what would the weather be like? What would the temperature be like? Like if if you could have your perfect opening day, what what would it look like? Oh my god, that's simple. <laughs> It'd be a drizzly rain, forty degrees. Perfect. Oh yeah, that doesn't happen around mile, here. <laughs> mile an hour. I love hunting in the rain. Yeah. I like a little bit of a drizzle too, but opening day around here is probably gonna be 
87 degrees and sunny. <laughs> I think it will here too. But you ask me what I prefer. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about like primary scrapes also after rain? Is that something you focus on? Primary scrape after a rain? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Bucks bucks tend to after they get, after they get snowed on or rained on, yeah, they like to go freshen up their their scrapes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this year I still don't know. I still haven't done my speed tour. I'm going to do it when I next week, probably next Monday and Tuesday. So I still have no clue where I'm going to hunt opening morning or opening evening for the first couple of days. Yeah, that's more based on the sign, is what I'm taking from it. Totally, totally okay. based on the sign. Yep. Now, hunting a lot of security cover in thick areas uh, with like public property. I know around here we're not really allowed to clear lanes. How do you combat with? not being able to clear lanes and, you know, having adequate shooting lanes to your, your runways? Well, <laughs> this is kind of like highly contested between guys, whether like cut, or not. cut or not or tie them back or. Uh, okay. First off, I have a standing rule when I'm hunting public land in Michigan, not in Kansas or Iowa or Ohio, but in Michigan. If I can walk to a location standing upright, I don't care how much sign is there, I'll never set it up to deer hunt. <laughs> so there could be a hundred scrapes when I'm postseason. There could be remnants of 20 scrapes in an area and 50 buck rubs. And, but I got out of my vehicle and I walked a quarter of a mile in an upright position where I wasn't crawling through brush or didn't have to cross a river with my waders. Uh, you know, if I could just walk to it, I'm not going to set it up because if there's a mature buck using that, it's going to be after dark. So on, on public land, I have a standing rule. I won't hunt any place unless I have to access it with waders, hip boots, a boat, or crawling on my hands and knees through brush. So you've got to get back where other hunters are just not willing to go. Now, once I cross a river or anybody crosses a river on public land, you know, a lot of times you're going back into dense bedding area, but other times you're going back into bedding area or there's going to be areas of open woodlot, just like there were on the land, you know, up by the road. Because you cross the river, there's still more land back there, but you've just eliminated 90% of your competition. So, you know, that that's kind of the way I view hunting public land is you've got to do things other hunters are not willing to do as far as accessing it. And then when I get back in those areas, I'm not so concerned, and again, I'm doing this during postseason, I'm not so concerned about a DNR officer going back there. God, I shouldn't say. I've got a big trip coming up, and there's always something that winds up left in the trash bin at home while we're on vacation. Now I have a Lomi, and it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. I love composting, Plus, it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in my garbage and smelling up the kitchen. Thanks to Lomi, I only have to take the trash out once a week, and it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience with no more leaking bags. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going into landfills and producing methane gas. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. It feels great to know that I'm creating soil instead of waste. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com forward slash Waypoint 
and use the promo code WAYPOINT to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to LOMI.com slash WAYPOINT and use the promo code WAYPOINT at checkout. I can edit it out if you want. uh, Crossing the river and going back to where I'm at. So yeah, I may cut a twig here and cut cut something there. But typically, when I get back in those types of areas, I usually look for openings. Because deer in general gravitate to openings. You know, even when I go in and and postseason scout, you know, a bedding area, I'm looking for openings within that bedding area. Because deer, usually if there's an opening, there'll be scrapes around the opening and there will be deer traffic around the edges of that opening or crisscrossing through that small opening. When I say an opening, it may be, you know, 20 yards across or 30 yards across. But if, you know, if there's a dense bedding area and there's an opening, odds are there's going to be deer traffic through there because that's going to be something deer gravitate to. That makes total so, sense. But I, I will I will cut lanes to an extent if I have to, but I, I try to gravitate because now I've left all the human activity behind for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so I gravitate to a little bit more open areas. A lot of times when you cross those rivers, you still got oaks. You still possibly may have an old apple tree back in there from years past. You know, you're still looking for the same types of sign. When I scout bedding areas, I'm still looking for oaks in bedding areas or possibly a primary scrape area in a bedding area or a beech nut or, you know, a choke cherry if I'm hunting public land where there's not a crop field for five miles. You know, I've had deer come in and, and, destination feeding location was under a black cherry tree, a choke cherry tree. So I'm looking for feeding locations because, again, every everything revolves around food. You know, early season bucks are eating food, and, and during the rut phases, the does are eating the food, and the bucks are attracted to the does. So, it, you know, everything it, everything with mature bucks is food, security, and sex. It's yeah. those three things. Yeah, and I think, as you said about the openings, too, a good point there is, you know, I think, Typically, deer feel a little more safe when they're in an open area that they can hear and see and kind of know what's around them whenever they're in real thick cover. So I think plus being social animals and like you said with the scrapes and different things makes a lot of sense why you would find a lot of sign in a little opening in a real dense covered area. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when I say security cover, people think I'm in a blackberry bog or something like that. Right. It's not and I'm just I'm just in areas where there's there may be tall weeds, there may mm-hmm. be uh, autumn olive, but, but but typically I'm not in the dense crap. I'm always on edges, you know. But they the deer have a real quick exit route. They can jump in that security cover and they're gone. They you know they they feel secure when they're that close to security cover. They're secure. They feel mature bucks anyway. Feel more secure moving during daylight hours. No, absolutely. And I just I just kind of thought of a little bit of a scenario, John. I kind of want to throw it your way. So say I'm spring scouting and I'm going through an area where it's kind of security cover and I find a big scrape, maybe like a community scrape that's that's still like halfway open or something like that. Come, let's say, early season or even the season in general, how would you go about attacking that location and hunting that location? Just You just went in, say it's next to a swamp or something that's really thick. And you go in and you find a scrape. How would you go about hunting that? Okay, I'm finding this scrape during postseason. Correct. Mm-hmm. I'd set up a location during postseason. So you're setting your and, tree up in postseason. Oh, absolutely. Okay. All my all my tree preparation is done by the end of April for the year. Yeah, that's nice. Unless somehow or another I may get somebody to say, hey, you know, you can hunt on my property. Then I then I have no option but to go scout it and prep locations whenever that may be. Uh, but you know, typically I'm. All my stuff is done by the end of April. So, 
yeah, I would prep a location. And typically when I'm scouting bedding areas, if it's a bedding area that I think has got a great chance of having a mature buck because it's secluded and it's across a river or something, you know, I'll usually like to set up at least one, possibly two or three locations. And those are locations that I will totally leave alone until pre-rut. So we're looking around Halloween. And when I go in to hunt those, it's going to be an all-day sit. So I'm going to be there in my tree an hour and a half before daylight, and I'm not going to leave my tree until a half an hour after dark. So I'm in the tree before the deer come into the bedding area, so I'm not spooking anything with my entry, and I'm giving them a half an hour to move out of the bedding area before I get down, so I'm not spooking anything with my exit. Because it's very common for a mature buck to be bedded and stay within the confines of the bedding area, even even if he gets up a little bit before dark and moves, you know, he's not going to leave the security of the bedding area until after dark. So half hour after dark, they're usually totally out of there and they're gone towards, you know, better feeding areas where there's doe, doe activity, more okay. doe activity. So you brought up an interesting point about finding a new property right before the season, and that's one of the scenarios we wanted to cover with you as well. Uh, maybe how you go about scouting that, say you pick something up September 1st, uh, a month before the season. How would you go about scouting that property real quick in and out with being as little intrusive as possible? Well, what I would do, and I've done, I've had that happen many times. I've okay. hunted, I've probably hunted over 150 different properties in my lifetime. You know, probably 30 of those were public land parcels, and the rest were, you know, two to 80 acre private parcels that I got permission on. So if I got something, let's say in early September, you, you really have no option. You mm-hmm. have to go in and you have to scout it and you have to prep a couple, prep a location or two. So what I would do, I would look at the weather forecast. If there were rain in the forecast, I would wait until it was going to rain. So my footprint and the intrusion would be a little bit less and I would go in and I would spend the majority of the day scouting it to the absolute best that I could. And, you know, setting up a location or two. I wouldn't go back in it, you know, I'd just do it on a one-day deal, cover it the absolute best I could. I'd obviously pull up an aerial of the property first to, to try and look and see, you know, where there might be a pinch point or, you know, there might be something on an aerial that would give me, you know, if it was a bigger piece of property, something to focus on. But uh, I, w- I would try to get it done in a day and try to make my human intrusion as light as possible so during a rain or a high wind where the deer can't hear me and the wind you know it's going to dissipate any odor i leave because you can't go in it's physically impossible i don't care how much scent lock you wear you can't go in if it's 80 degrees or 85 degrees in september and prep a location and move cuttings and cut this and you know put strap on steps or whatever up in a tree without sweating your ass off you yeah, can't right. do it it's impossible i agree with so that 100 <laughs> odor and rain and winds will definitely dissipate that odor quicker than if it was just a nice dry day with no wind you know the deer are going to hear you uh, you're making noise cutting stuff and, um, so wind and, and rain will help dissipate it you're still making an intrusion but you don't have an option because you just got the property now i don't know if you mentioned before but you're wearing rubber boots as well is that correct yeah oh yeah absolutely okay. yeah you gotta wear rubber boots rubber or neoprene yeah. So I have anything ex- that doesn't breathe, I would never ever consider wearing any leather or cordura boots. Now I heard on a, a different podcast actually, and <laughs> you kind of went into it a little bit, but you have like fifteen different kinds of boots. At least. 
<laughs> yeah, oh, wow. I think it's more like 20. It's more like 20. Yeah, you got like three different kinds of pack boots and all sorts of different layering with, with different boots with different thinselid and everything. That was, that was really interesting yeah. in my opinion. I have two pair of Baffin, B-A-F-F-I-N. Those are the best pack boots made right now. And they're made out, they're out of Canada. Baffin Titan, T-I-T-A-N is the brand. Uh, or Baffin is the brand, Titan is the model. Okay. I own a pair of Northern pack boots. I own a pair of lacrosse pack boots, a pair of Rocky pack boots. I own two pair of uh, old red ball pack boots that I've had since the 70s, and they still are holding up. And I own eight pairs of muck boots, two pair of a new muck type boot, the guy that left muck boot, and he started this other dry something or other neoprene mm-hmm. boot. I got two of those. I've got three or four pair of lacrosse. I got 600 Burleys, 200 Burleys. 1200 Burleys, which I hardly ever wear anymore. I've got some of the neoprene Burleys by lacrosse, and I've got a couple old pair of Red Ball 200 gram thin-slit boots. Wow. So I just picked up a new pair of the 400 gram thin-slit uh, lacrosse Burleys. Yeah, I've heard you say before about new boots. What What do you suggest? Uh, you know, I just picked these up. What do you suggest for me to do to try to keep those from getting that new boot smell off of them before the season opens up? But the only thing you can do this close to season to get rid of that new mm-hmm. boot odor is um, I would try the ozone machine if you had an ozone machine. You know, yeah. I, I don't like ozone machine for my clothing and stuff because it leaves an odor. But you're trying to get rid of a really strong odor because right. boots you're talking about are neoprene, I believe, right? Yeah, they're a little bit of both. They're neoprene and yeah, rubber. Neoprene and rubber bottoms. Yep. But they're, they're totally 100% waterproof, so obviously mm-hmm. there's not going to allow any odor to get out. But those kind of boots, either put them in a tote with an ozone machine or put them in a tote with the activated carbon. And you can buy activated bulk activated carbon in any pet store. You can usually buy it by the three or four pound containers. It's like 30 bucks. Hmm. Um, and the other option is to bury them in some mud or dirt. And the dirt will actually suck a lot of that odor out of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, I that appreciate the advice. That was a selfish question on my own, but <laughs> hey, that's okay. I'm thinking about getting a new pair of boots here pretty quick too, and I, I didn't really know what I was going to do, and I, I still might just stick with my other ones, but I got a slight crack in the bottom of one, so it might leak what a little bit. What kind you got? So right now, I have a Cabela's brand boot, and I guess I could probably take those back, huh? Probably. Yeah, I could probably that, take those back. Are they neoprene or rubber? They're neoprene, or no, they're 100 percent rubber. Okay. Yeah, those ones. How are 100% old are they? Rubber. Do you have a, do you have a suggestion for me maybe because I'm I'm I don't think if if I use these ones I don't think they're going to make it another season. They're they're just cracking. Yeah, they're starting to crack on the bottom a little bit. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of interesting if you a few minutes ago I mentioned I have red ball boots that are from the 70s. I was just going to bring that up too. I was going to say what are you doing to to keep your boots alive because I couldn't no. mind it in last 5 seasons and they were cracking and they were all rubber. You want to know why? I do. <laughs> Because boots nowadays are made really, really cheap. Yeah. Okay. Back in the seventies and eighties, when you bought Red Ball or Lacrosse rubber boots, they mm-hmm. had a real high rubber content. And then in the early nineties, uh, Rocky boots started making boots for Walmart. And because they were making them for Walmart, they despect them, and they they actually used a lot lower content of rubber, and they put a lot of clay in them, mm-hmm. and Therefore, they started, they cracked a lot faster because right. they just dried out faster. So because they were selling them so cheap, Walmart was selling boots so cheap, 
other companies to be competitive, and I'm talking about lacrosse and, mm-hmm. and Red Ball at the time, they all had to do the same thing, and they lowered the rubber content in the boots and added a lot of clay. And you, the rubber boots you buy nowadays aren't even close to the amount of rubber content as the boots from the 70s and 80s. The boots I have from the 70s, I own two pair of Red Ball pack boots and two pair of Red Ball 200-gram boots, and they still, and I wear them every year. Wow. And they still don't have a crack in them. <laughs> yeah, mine are junk, apparently. They're <laughs> almost 50 years old. That's insane. That's <laughs> wild. Do you think that's why they're adding neoprene to boots instead of all pure No, they're, at, they're making boots out of neoprene now because they, there's so much lighter weight. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, do you think that neoprene maybe holds a little bit of scent? Uh, It could because it's porous. It has a porous exterior. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you were to actually take the side of a neoprene boot and rub it in oil or gasoline, yeah, it's going to hold odor a lot longer than, than rubber would. Yeah, because it's got that little bit of fabric to it. But I, I'll tell you what, I've been wearing muck boots for early season hunting and for, you know, until it gets below freezing. And I, I've loved, <laughs> I love the muck boots. I, I'm shocked at how well they've worn. I thought I'd, going through the tags and briars and stuff that they'd tear apart. They've held up way better than I thought they would. I'm getting, I'm getting about five years out of a pair, which is shocking to me. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Yeah. Now, John, really comfortable. Now, I have. We've never done this on an episode before, and I'm kind of like, I don't want to throw you through a loop or anything like that. But we we kind of developed a couple of rapid fire questions. Would that be okay? Sure. All right. All right. What would be your number one tip for a new hunter? And and feel free to elaborate. Uh, kind of what we talked about. I think scent control is probably the biggest. Once you can eliminate wind direction, your success rate goes up exponentially. Yeah, I agree more. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Scent control would be my number one deal. Okay. Um, Runners take more better care and and really pay attention to again get a good scent control regimen. Okay. Now, what kind of broadheads are you shooting? You shooting fixed or mechanicals? Uh, last year I shot a G5 Striker, 100 grain, inch and an eighth cut. Prior to that, I'd been using an inch and a half cut steel head by Rocket. Rocket, the uh, steel Oh, head. Rocket broadheads, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen them. Rocket, yeah. And they, I, I've kind of lowered my poundage, and Rockets deploy front to rear. The blades open from the front, and they deploy back to the back, from front to back. So they, they take a, in my opinion, I think a Rocket probably absorbs about 20% of its energy just opening the blades because of the way they deploy from front to back. So I've kind of, and they were an inch and a half cut and now I'm shooting about 55 pounds and I just don't think my bow's, and I'm still shooting a Matthews Conquest. I'm on Matthews Pro Staff. I get a free bow every year, but I'm still, my, my go-to bow is a Conquest, which is a fingers bow, so it's not real fast. So last year I went to that inch and a half uh, G5 striker and this year I'm thinking of going to uh the g5 uh dead meat i saw that inch and a half cut mechanical but the blades deploy from the rear so you don't lose you only lose about two or three percent yeah of your energy opening the blades up yeah i saw that i saw those they looked actually pretty mean they're kind of goofy looking but they the results are there yeah yeah they've had good real good results yeah so the next rapid fire question you're known for killing numerous pope and young bucks are you a doe hunter still? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've never really heard you talk about it. That's why I'm I'm just kind of kind of curious. Nobody's ever asked. 
I, I will never shoot a doe until December. Okay. You know, once my once my serious hunting is done, then I, if I if I need a doe for the freezer, or you know, if somebody lets me hunt their property and hey, it's mandatory. You know, it's a farmer and I you got to kill some does. You know, it'll be in December. You know, they're a little more. You know, they're more congested. You know, they they kind of group up in December, so they're easier to kill, and they they stay more confined because everything's straight bedding to feeding, so they're they're easier to kill in December too. And I'm not screwing up any of my hunting locations by killing a doe and then going back and expecting to kill a buck at that location. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, now the next one, you can base it on an area or specific state, but what are the type of bucks that you're targeting? Are you targeting more of an age class or a score class whenever you're out there looking for a buck to harvest? In Michigan, I'm targeting an age class because I've killed five-year-old bucks in Michigan that had 105-inch antlers. Right. But when I go like... And I haven't went to Iowa in quite a while, but I'm going to Kansas this year. My my target criteria out there for the first probably five days will be 150 inches. Nice. And then I might drop down to 140 by the last day or two. Okay. Hey, they're definitely there. I mean, I have an uncle that goes out there pretty frequently, and I'm, I'm kind of bumming. I actually had an opportunity to go to Kansas this year, and I turned it down because of work obligations, but... He every year he consistently shoots a pretty good deer out in Kansas. Because there's a lot of them and they're really stupid. <laughs> good, Couldn't that's the kind of deer more. I need. That's, that's about the best answer I can give you. I can. I'm one year I went out there on a one week hunt and I saw 18 different Pope and Young bucks in a week. Wow. I wouldn't. I won't see 18 Pope and Young bucks in Michigan in five or six years. I right. won't either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like. I, I mean, there's been 10 years that have went by where I have not seen 18 Pope and Young bucks in Michigan. And I saw 18 in a, in a week. And they were different bucks. They were not seeing the same one twice. Right. That's incredible. It's just, it's another world. They got like 25,000 bow hunters. We got 320,000 bow hunters. There's just no hunting pressure out there. And because there are so few hunters, the hunters, even the residents that do hunt out there, they, tar- they target big bucks. So. Mm-hmm. All the bucks are allowed to grow to maturity, and they're pretty stupid when they hit, you know, that kill criteria age because they haven't been shot at. And also, the rut is so competitive out there. There's so many big bucks, and they're all vying for breeding rights. So, you know, it's very, very competitive during the rut. You know, you take a state like PA where you guys are at, you know, there may be a 640-acre section, and there may only be one and possibly two three-and-a-half-year-old or older bucks in the entire section or two sections or whatever. So they don't have to move a lot during the rut to get breeding rights. You know, if they may have a doe confined in a bedding area and during her 28-, 32-hour cycle, and as soon as she's bred, you know, it doesn't take them long to find the next doe. If they cross a doe in heat and she's with another buck, they just, you know, as soon as they show up, they're the dominant deer, the other buck leaves. He takes them over. So... They don't have to do a lot of moving around during the physical rut because they're doed up all the damn time. Yeah. Out there, there's so many mature bucks. They're always moving around vying, vying for breeding rights because there's as many five-and-a-half-year-old bucks out there as there are five-and-a-half-year-old does. Yeah, I agree. Grunt and rattle all you want around here, but, you know, that big buck is just going to say, yeah, whatever, I'm the big guy, and then you're going to see the one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-olds running all around. Yeah, you're going to get no results around here rattling. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not going to work. Now, there you, work. I, I would almost bet 50% of the time I've rattled in Iowa and Kansas, I've had a reply. I'm yeah. not saying from a mature buck, but I've had something come in, whether it be a six-point or a two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point. Something has responded. 
it's, I mean, that's why the TV guys are so successful. And, right. and they're on managed properties out there. They're not on regular property. Yeah, so it's even more of an advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd never do, you'd never do the aggressive stuff you see on TV in a PA. That, I mean, you'd just be spooking deer. You wouldn't be trying to draw them in. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't see deer the rest of the day if you started rattling like crazy and going all sorts of nuts in your stand here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, rattling works. I've killed three... Three book bucks in Michigan during the first two days of bow season by rattling them in, uh, but that's over a forty-year period. <laughs> right. I have rattled in successfully one buck in Pennsylvania, and he he was older, but he because of our antler restriction, he was just not legal. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, but that that was I think you an in extreme the four, circumstance. Four point area. What's that? Are you in the four point area? Yeah, it's four points, and now it's even. It's even gone beyond the four points, so it's it's three up. Yeah. So technically, if you have the four point, you have the brow time. But other than that, it's 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 three up. And he was actually a really big six point with two brows. So he just it didn't work out that way. But he was definitely mature. Yep. Yeah. But yep. so next rapid fire question, and this is the last one. But I'm I'm really interested in your opinion on this one. So, of all the tips that you hear guys talk about consistently, are there any out there that you that you hear more often than not that you feel are false or really inaccurate? Ozone. Ozone? Okay. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah. I think a lot of people are gravitating to this ozone with things and keep thinking it's some kind of magic, and it's it's just not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you saved me 200 there, bucks, and I think. There's one other thing when you said tip earlier and i said scent control scent control is, is huge it's the biggest thing there is in my opinion uh but another thing that a lot of hunters talk about but they don't physically do is midday hunting during the rut you know when i when i'm talking about hunting in bedding areas i'm there all day so obviously i'm there during the middle of the day oh yeah and just give you a little bit of a background on the midday hunting midday hunting is huge during pre-rut and during the rut phases as long as you're in security cover uh, in Michigan, I've taken 20, 20 uh, book bucks between November 1st and November 14th, which is our gun season opens November 15th. So I've taken 20 book bucks in that 14-day period, and seven of those book bucks were taken between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the seven time out everybody's of 20, going to get lunch. 35% were taken during midday, and I would... 100% guarantee you that less than 10% of my time spent on stand during those 14 days was in the middle of the day. Less than 10% of my time on stand was during a, was from 11 to 3. Most of it was morning and evening hunts, yet 35% of my kills were between 11 and 3. So that's how big of a deal hunting in the midday during the pre-rut and rut is. That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, the, the midday movement, do you attribute that to weather or just the fact that it's the rut and maybe they were doed up during the morning hours and then, you know, they lost their doe during midday and they're moving again? Nope, I just think it's their natural movement. I think mature okay. bucks, typically in pressured areas, they bed down before daylight and they wait for all the deer activity to move through. Most deer activity is pretty much done by 10 o'clock in the morning. And then mature bucks are lazy. You know, they get up 10, 30, 11 o'clock, 
and they scent check their core area as long as there's adequate security cover to move through. You just don't hunt in the midday in a, you know, just any old tree. It's got to be in a space. It's got to be in a location that's adequate for midday hunting. It's got to have, you know, transition security cover from a bedding area to it or to another bedding area. But basically, they get up after all the deer traffic's moved through, and they can scent check the perimeters of the bedding areas within their core area, and then they'll take, you know, for deer traffic that moved through in the morning, and if there's a doe in heat or close to in heat, then they go in the bedding area and seek her out or whatever. And if there's nothing here, well, then they'll take the best security cover available to the next bedding area and scent check the perimeter of that or go in it and scent check for does there. And then as soon as they've checked everything within their core area, they bed back down and then, you know, get up and move after after dark out into the fields where the majority of the does are. So it's, it's a natural midday movement pattern, and that same midday movement pattern happens all over. I mean, it happens in Kansas, it happens in Iowa. It's just that out there you don't need to do that midday thing because the big bucks move in the mornings and evenings as well. Gotcha. Makes a lot of sense. You take into account 35% of the kills were in that four-hour time frame. Less than 10% of the time spent on stand was during that four-hour time frame in that 14 days. That, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty decent stat. Oh, that's staggering. Yeah. I, w- I would almost dare say it was probably 7% of my time spent on stand was, you know, during that four-day, or during that four-hour period during those 14 days. Mm-hmm. For those, you know, amount of years it took me to kill those 20 bucks, those 20 book bucks. And that was in Michigan, all in pressured areas. All right. Well, I think we're getting here on time, and I want to be... Uh respectful to your time and we really appreciate you coming on but we want you to tell us a story before you go and uh you know instead of our normal we'll go with the most memorable hunt we want to we're more interested in maybe hearing your first buck kill with a bow and then mind the listeners if they didn't pick up earlier you also shoot with uh your fingers as well so keep that in mind also whenever you're listening to this story but um why don't you go ahead and get into maybe your first bow kill on a buck well how about my first bow kill period Perfect. I love it. Because yeah. it's actually quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool by me, man. Yeah, that sounds great. It was a doe. It was a monster doe. It was huge. And it was on public land down in uh, southern Michigan. And I was 13 at the time. And I was hunting with a guy that was in his mid-30s. Because nobody in my family hunted. I, I'm a self-taught hunter. and But I was hunting with this dude because he had a vehicle. And he was in the swamp. He actually hunted in the swamp. And he put me up in this, uh, I think it was a maple tree, if I remember right. And I was just up in a crotch on a branch, you know, just standing up in a crotch and sitting on another branch. They didn't have tree stands back then. This was in the six, mid-60s. And I didn't see much. I think I saw a doe or two in a distance. But he told me before he dropped me off at this tree, because this was a morning hunt. He said, I'm going in the swamp. When you get out of the tree... You know where the pines are back there. Come back by the swamp and, you know, stage up at those pine trees. When I come out of the swamp, you know, I'll pick you up and we'll and we'll leave. So he did not want me going in the swamp looking for him. So I get out of the tree and I walk over and I get underneath this pine. And it's a white pine. So, you know, the branches are, there's no needles on the branches until they're like six, four or five feet off, off the ground. So I sit underneath the pine and sitting against the trunk and this is back in recurve days i had a 40 40 pound ben pearson recurve with cedar arrows and 
and I'm just sitting there, and it was a beautiful morning. It's about 10.30 in the morning, and all of a sudden, this doe comes barreling out of the bedding area, because I think Le- Leroy was the guy's name. He had gotten down, and he spooked this doe coming out, and this doe came out in front of me, and she was about 20 yards in front of me, and she stopped right dead broadside right in front of me, and she turned around and looked back into the swamp, so it was obvious Leroy had spooked her. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, crap you know i'm gonna try and shoot this doe so i took my bow because it's like a 60 inch recurve and i turned it sideways almost parallel with the ground and drew my drew my arrow back and when i released the arrow the arrow actually hit the pine bough on the tree i was underneath it hit the pine bough and ricocheted right through both of her lungs (laughs) Oh, <laughs> I would have shot four feet over that doe's back had it not hit that pine branch. And it just ricocheted off that pine branch and just drained her right through both lungs. So I sat there and watched her run into the swamp up on this little ridge. And then Leroy comes out, and you know, and I'm like all geeked and excited. First year I've ever shot. And I told him what I did. I said, you must have spooked that doe coming out. And I shot her, and I hit her great. I hit this branch, and you could see it where it skipped off this branch. And we went in and found her, and when we gutted her, he gutted her out. He propped her up against a tree and started target practicing at her. And I actually started crying. He was just a mean bastard. (laughs) He literally gutted her out, propped her body up, and she was big. She had to be 150. 40 pound doe dress. Yeah, it's a big Propped doe. up against a tree and started target practicing. I think he was pissed off. I shot a big deer and he didn't. Back then, killing a, any deer with a bow was a big, big deal. <laughs> but anyway, ricocheting off the branch, Jeez. I thought was. So, well, what's the saying? I'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah, I think that, that works yeah, out that, that way. <laughs> Sounds a lot that like works. the shots my uh, younger brother ends up taking every year and getting away with. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's definitely better lucky than good, let's say that much. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want a buck story? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Let me think about a buck story. It doesn't have to be your first either. Maybe your most memorable or something. You're one of the ones you're mo- you know more proud of. Well, probably one that I'm really one that I'm really proud of. There wasn't that many years ago. It was 2016 in the winter, and this guy uh, had invited me to come down to Ohio bow hunting in December after their gun season. So him and his buddy had bow hunted this place all year, and then they gun hunted it, and they missed this big 10-pointer twice with a shotgun, and uh, then they invited me to come down and see if I could try and kill him with a bow. Now, I've never met these guys before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just talked to, I just talked, chatted with one guy online on a chat talk forum, and he invited me down, and I went down there and stayed in a little flea bag hotel, and uh, it was in Guernsey County, if I remember mm. right. I used to hunt Guernsey County. Okay. That's, yeah. That, uh, I think it's east of Columbus, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's it's east of Columbus, and it's down towards the southern part, but not all the way southern Ohio. Yeah. A lot of deer. Yeah, it was right down in that area. So anyway, I, I get down there, and I'm in this hotel. First day I went out there scouting, it was just cold and crisp. Uh, wasn't any snow on the ground at the time. And uh, it just wasn't conducive for morning hunting. So I prepped two trees, and this one tree I prepped was along, it was along the edge of this big, tall weed field. And there was a bunch of big row of pines. The pines just meandered along the southern end of this big weed field, 
and they were about six or seven rows deep, and then it dropped down into this bedding briar area that ran all the way along the bottom side of those pines and the back side of those pines. So I, I prepped this tree because I remember the guy saying he, he had hunted there and he, that's where he missed that buck once with a gun. So I prepped the tree and the very next day I went back. One thing they did different when they were hunting with a bow than what I was doing is he was walking, when he was walking in to hunt his pine tree, he was hunting a different tree than I was prior to their gun season, he was walking along the edge of the pines and the weeds on an evening hunt. So Basically, because these pines were white pines, they were pretty bare underneath. So these deer that were over the back side of the hill from the pines where they were bedding, they could physically hear him and see him, you know, during the rut phase when all the foliage is off the briars. They could see him, and they he said he would spook deer back when he was walking along the edge of the pines. So what I did when I entered the first night is I walked out into the weed field, just like I had mentioned earlier on, you know, evening sits, I walked out into the middle of the weed field and I made a beeline right to the pine tree that I had prepped. And it started snowing. And it absolutely dumped about eight inches of snow that evening. And I had a big six-point, two-and-a-half-year-old six-point come out, and I didn't shoot him. But he, he came within 12 yards probably. Oh, and he was freshening scrapes along the edge of the pines. It was a two-year-old. So I, when I exited... I waited a half hour after dark because there were other deer that had came up out of those that backside of the pines down in the briars because I didn't spook anything because I didn't walk in the way he did. Well, they came up and they left and went out through the weeds and went elsewhere. Well, then on my exit, I exited down through the briars where the deer had came from, so I wasn't going to spook anything in the weed field with my exit. So the next evening, I did the same thing, and now the snow is on the ground. And I walked out into the field, made a beeline to that pine tree, got up in the pine, and it started snowing again. And it probably dropped another four inches of snow. And uh, that 10-point came out. He came out down at the end of the pines, and he did exactly what the 6-point did the night before. He started working the edge of the pines while it was snowing, and he was freshening the the old scrapes that were under under the pine trees. And I ended up shooting him at 14 yards. The only thing that was different from the way I was hunting that deer, and this was like three days after their gun season ended. Mm-hmm. So this is in December. I think it was December 17th or something like that. Uh, the only thing I did different than him is I was using a different entry and exit. He was spooking deer with his entry because he was walking along the pines, spooking deer over the backside of the pines and the briars with his entry. And then he was walking out along the edge of the weed field, so he was spooking deer with his exit. They were out in the weed field. So he was spooking deer with his entry and exits. I wasn't spooking deer with my entries or my exits. And uh, basically on the second evening, I, I shot that big 10-point, I don't know, it's just short of 150, 10-point. That goes back to your point earlier, saying that entry and exit is just so important. That was the only difference between what, what he was doing and I was doing. That was and, the only and difference. you're the well, one who killed the buck, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I killed it two days or several couple days after gun season. Which is incredible. Yeah, yeah, and he'd been gun hunted for God's sakes. Usually, it's hard to kill something in December, and and uh, that that one just happened to work out. So, yeah, I would say, and if if anybody doesn't know about you know gun hunting in Ohio, it gets pretty pounded. It's similar to PA. 
you know, but they do a lot more pushing because they have the shotguns rather than the rifles. So they do a lot more pushing and a lot more chasing deer around. So that's even more impressive, you know, that yeah. you went in. Ohio's hit, but, got a lot of deer hunters. Ohio, yeah. Ohio has about 300,000 bow hunters. They're pretty close to Michigan, but they got a lot more property as far as landmass to hunt. And Ohio has, I don't know how many gun, I don't know how many gun hunters they have. Michigan has about 700,000 gun hunters. Pennsylvania's is right there too, I think. Michigan and PA are pretty close on both bow and gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny you said that because that deer was basically just sitting there watching that entrance route. And I think that's, like you said, went into why you killed him because that was his foolproof. I mean, he didn't see anybody walk in. He felt comfortable. So that's why he got yeah. up in daylight and walked right to you. 100%. Yeah. 100%. All right. That's why people walking along field edges on evening hunts to and to get to their spots if they're you know if there's an open crop field or even a standing cornfield don't walk along the edge of the corn don't walk along the beans walk out through the field whether it's corn or whatever if you yeah. spook a deer out in the standing corn it's irrelevant it ain't gonna mean anything the deer are gonna continue doing what they're doing um, so you know walk through the corn walk through the open field hay whatever it is and then just make a beeline right to your tree don't walk along the edges. Yeah, makes a lot of sense now. So, uh, I, I, you know, again, we're, we're pretty much there on time. So I really appreciate you coming in. But I want you to go ahead and, you know, share with everybody where they can find you, uh, find your information, maybe share your website and some other things that you have going on. Okay, well, uh, if you're going to put it on your site, I can mm-hmm. send you the link to my website. But it's uh, pretty basic. It's deer, D-E-E-R hyphen J-O-H-N dot net deer-john.net is my website. That's clever. (laughs) I didn't think of it. My wife, a friend of my wife thought of that, but I thought it was pretty cool too. I like it. It's a good play on words. I like that. Yeah. And then I'm also doing these whitetail workshops. Uh, That's on the website. They're two-day events. There's also a deer and deer hunting YouTube video series because I write a lot for deer and deer hunting and I've, I like I have watched before. every single one of those by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, you have? I have. I've, I've been binge watching everything that's John Eberhart. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Those when we filmed them, I did not think they would get edited like they did. You know, I, I like the guys at Deer and Deer Hunting, but uh, you know, they're obviously they promote a lot of managed stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in their magazine anymore, it's a lot of managed hunting and food plots and stuff. And because uh, when we did those YouTube videos, I tried to bring up TV guys, and you know, you have to do stuff adverse to what they're doing if you're hunting pressured land, and then they they edited all that stuff out. So I was, but they're 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 decent. They're decent YouTube videos. I yeah. Guess. But anyway, I'll send you the link to that, and you can put that on your site. Absolutely. Those, are going to continue through the end of November. Okay. And they come one a, one a week. I think they start air them on a new one each week on Friday. Yeah, we'll definitely then, post that for you. That's not a problem at all. Okay. Well, I'll I'll send you the link to the deer and deer hunting uh, thing and my website. All right, John. Well, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, man. It's, uh, it was definitely my pleasure, man. And I hope everybody has great luck out there and hunt safe. Yeah, good luck this season, man. We appreciate it. Good luck. All the best luck. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And uh, John Eberhardt, huge thanks to him for coming on the podcast. What a wealth of knowledge. That guy is just, he's something else. Yeah, he's unbelievable. John, an awesome human being, full of knowledge. 
I know I found myself sitting there literally taking notes throughout the entire uh, recording. And I was just blown away about how much knowledge he had and how much depth he got into, like the activated carbon and different things that he talked about. My goodness, that guy just knows a lot about hunting. And, that, and it shows why he is able to be successful year after year. Oh, yeah. It's I just couldn't agree more. unbelievable. So I, I really hope our listeners took a lot from that one. I'm, I'm going to find myself playing this one back a couple times. Oh, for sure. An amazing episode but yeah thank you to john you know he was an, an incredible person to talk to and uh, that's an experience i'll never forget yep 100 percent. so no excuses people get your scent control regiment in line and season's coming up in a couple of days just get out there don't let the deer see you and shoot straight mm-hmm. yeah that's right it's the best we can do but uh let's wrap this thing up uh thanks again john and uh also why don't you go ahead and take it away and let everyone know where they can find us absolutely so everybody can send us an email over at the white toe extraction podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you whether it's good or bad they can also find us on facebook and instagram at the white tail distraction podcast and uh we have new hats for sale so uh send us on a dm yeah, or something for uh the hats twenty dollars each Yep, we got a bunch of hats already sold going out the door, so they're going quick. Make sure you guys get a, at least a message in to me, and then we'll meet up and either I have to ship it out to you, we'll figure out shipping costs, or, you know, if you're local, I'd be more than happy to meet up with you and get the hats in your hands. Sounds like a plan, man. Good luck, everybody, this weekend. Yeah, good luck.